Hello and welcome to the Cat Master Chronicles. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from cat owners about well-being. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, the founder of Chatty Cats Care, a professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with cat owners about their individual journeys. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. This episode is brought to you by Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Hello and welcome to the Cat Mass Day Chronicles episode 26. This week I'm joined by Charmaine Fury. She is the founder of Free Podcast, Militantly Mix, which explores issues of race and identity from the perspective of mixed race people. Blurred Co-Mix, a podcast about blackness and being mixed blurred. Lastly, By Furious, a safe space podcast for all LGBTQ plus folk that feels marginalized by mainstream LGBTQ plus communities. She also owns Mask by Maine, an online face mask store offering a variety of handmade designs and Gulf Coast Cosmos, a comic book shop currently online but moving to a physical premises in Houston in the near future. She also has four cats all named after Star Wars extended universe dark side characters. I'm so pumped for this conversation. I've literally been looking forward to it all week. Charmaine is goals. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today, Charmaine. I've briefly introduced you, but if you could please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I've been listening to your show and I just think it is such a like just a fun way to mix what women are out there doing or what people are out there doing and cat loving because I do consider being a cat mom as part of my identity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I list my identity as mixed race, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom. Uh mask making comic book store co-owning podcaster so I consider that my identity and um (laughs) to see to see like a show that links cat ownership or or being owned by cats more specifically Uh as part of it um I'm really into that thank you oh good I'm glad you appreciate it so let's start by chatting a bit more about your podcasts what are they about and why did you decide to start them um, I, I think I got into podcasting first as a consumer because I was really into true crime. Um, and and from there, I started thinking, like, I'm really into this and I listen to a lot of these. I wonder if there's anything about mixed race stuff, because, mm. you know, as a mixed race person, I have been in it my whole life having to deal with my identity and and how it fluctuates depending on where I live or who I'm around predominantly and stuff. So um, I started to look for mixed race podcasts. And what I found was mostly, you know, dead podcasts, some that hadn't been out in a year or two, you know, maybe they lasted six episodes or 12, Mm. but they didn't pick up again. And, or I saw really journalistic style things where with like episodic ones that were just like, you know, in America, we have these hybrid people and they are mixed race. And I really hated not hearing about myself through my own tribe. You know, like I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't like outsiders telling our story on our behalf and, and, and also considering us all this monolithic thing that every mixed race person 
has this very same identity and, and access. And so I was like, you know, maybe I'll do my own. I wanted to do a documentary. I had gone to film school, um, but I wasn't really in that world anymore. So I thought, oh, maybe podcasting might be more possible. And um, it took another two years of me, like, really getting myself up for it before I felt imposter syndrome had released enough for me uh-huh. to press record. And once I started, my my whole life changed. I mean, getting a chance to speak to other mixed race people all over the world about their own individual identity and the amount of work I've been able to do on myself and my own identity as a result of hearing other people's stories. Um, it's emotional work. It's I consider it medicine now. I I need to do it. (laughs) Otherwise I won't uh, survive. And then another big part of my um, identity and and my life is uh, being a comic book nerd. And um, as a mixed black kid, reading comics in the hood wasn't really something you did when I was growing up. And there's this, you know, phrase that we, or this term blurred now, B-L-E-R-D, which means black nerd, that was new. Mm -hmm. Like the kids now got to do it, but people from my generation didn't. And um, my fellow mixed blurred, a friend that I grew up with, who's also um, a black mixed person, we have that identity. So we wanted to start talking about what it's like to be, um, you know, a nerdy person that's into comics and geek stuff. And, um, we decided to do that. And, and in doing that, I got like another dose of medicine. I got to hear that there were other blurs out in the world. Mm. And so I think everything that I do related to podcasting has to do with um, something I'm missing in terms of a, a tribe yeah. a group of people that are like me. So I'm not in isolation. Mm-hmm. And then that also led to by furious, which is generally I don't feel like a flag waving member of the LGBTQ plus community because I feel like as a non-white male gay person, Mm -hmm. I don't have visibility. Um, Even in terms of gay pride, which was created by mixed and black and Latinx uh, LGBT women, um, they're erased from pride now. They're the origins of it. And yet they they aren't the predominant face of pride. And so I felt like I didn't really have a space to, you know, be my bisexual self publicly. So I created a space just to discover that other POC folks also kind of feel the same. They're not part of the mainstream. And yet here we have all these other additional issues related to our LGBTQ plus status that is also related to our racial identity and upbringing and stuff like that. So I wanted to be able to have conversations with people again from my tribe, whether we were mixed the same or not, Mm. Um, just being outside of that mainstream made it easier to have conversations with people who could at least identify to a degree. Um, And so that's pretty much my relationship to podcasting is like where I feel a gap in my life. (laughs) I create a show about it. And, um, I have a few more sort of waiting in the wings until I have a little bit of more finance to be able to produce them. But similarly, why I like your show too, is that you're talking to all these great business owners, but a whole segment of the show is dedicated to them being cat parents. And I Uh love like, it's just an identity. It's just a part of an identity that it's nice to hear that aspect of people's lives. And so that's my major relationship to podcasting. I need to do it now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I think that's probably like one of the reasons I also started too, because it was that gap. Like I have friends who are cat owners and who love cats, but like not many, I would say. Like Mm. I feel like I am the person who kind of introduced cats a little bit into some of my friends lives and then they've kind of converted over which is amazing (laughs) like that's the best possible outcome because I think yeah some people have this perception of like not trusting cats for some reason and like yeah like they think they're unpredictable and like they can't trust them but then when they actually you know spend time with them they get to see this other side and they are so loving and they're not like unpredictable and not like you know unloving creatures they're just they're just there and they just want to be loved as well absolutely I I'll admit I was a person who would claim I hated cats growing up and okay. I, I, I hadn't been around any yeah um and uh my husband my now husband really he grew up with cats and okay um and he had lost one 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 had died um 18 years this was like the most scrappiest cat there ever was and in mm-hmm. 18 years it had gotten run down mm-hmm. and we weren't living at home at the time so it was just like this distance emotion and I you know I watched him be upset about um, this cat. So I went to go find him a baby cat because his mom used to bring him a box of kittens every time one of their cats died. Um, I wasn't going to bring a box of kittens cause that seemed insane to me, mm. but I went and got a kitten and I brought <laughs> our first one home Revan. And, um, from the second Revan popped his little head outside of the box where I went to go pick him up, I was done. I was, I was <laughs> hooked. I was yeah. converted and <laughs> I cannot imagine my life right now. I, I don't understand will to live if you do not have cats. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this is making me so happy. Like I've literally got tears in my eyes. Like how sad. <laughs> they're just, they're Honestly. so precious. Like I know. Yeah. Um, and they all have different personalities mm-hmm. and you know, uh, I have attachment to each one in a different way and I just love them. They're, yeah. they're the, they're literally the coolest animals on the planet. I don't they know really are. No, they really, really are. <laughs> <laughs> So like you said, you know, how you kind of connected with my kind of podcast. I connected with Militantly Mixed as well, because um, as a fellow mixed race person, I enjoy also listening to other mixed race people sharing their stories. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about your own mixed identity and what it was like growing up mixed race in the US? Because I can imagine it's quite different in comparison to the UK. Sure. Um, so I I refer to myself personally as militantly mixed, which is why I did name me in the show that. And in yeah. that I am um I am a militant person, meaning racial militancy, meaning uh service to my community. Mm. And as a kid who grew up in the in the hood here in the States in Long Beach, um uh, my community didn't have the same kind of resources that say white suburban communities had. Um, and, and they were very mixed communities. They were predominantly black and Mexican um, where I grew up and we, you know, we were poor kids that had a hustle because we had to put food on our table in addition to our parents putting food on the table. And so militancy meaning service to my community was a very big part of who I was. Um, and also 
my families are military families in that my two grandfathers, um, one, my dad's father was a black American GI who was stationed in England um, during the fifties. And my white grandfather, my mother's father was um, like a white hybrid, a German, Irish, Appalachian, West Virginian person who was a GI who was stationed in Japan during Mm. the fifties. And so they married, they met and married my grandmothers in those countries and brought them here to the States. So, um, so my mixedness specifically comes from for lack of a better term, colonization, my grandfathers Mm. went to other countries and grabbed wives and brought them here. Uh, So I have a, I have a a black British connection on one side of my family and a a Japanese white West Virginian connection on my mother's side, but I didn't grow up with my grandfathers too much. I grew up with my grandmothers who, you know, were both immigrants to this country and my parents were teenagers, so they weren't the best parents. So my grandmother stepped in to look after me. So even though I'm American, born in America, I was raised partially by a British Caucasian woman and a Japanese woman. And so I have a very like immigrant child of an immigrant status here mm-hmm. in the States. And um, and so I feel I feel a connection to to Eng- well London specifically, but my 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 nan is also uh, Welsh. She's half Welsh. Oh. Um, her family was was Welsh, and um, I've been learning a little bit more about them as well. And and only to discover that the Welsh side was practically like the black side here, and that they were poor, you know industrial workers Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. had to scrap and and save to get to a better place. And for them, that place was London. And then they were able to mix with somebody in London. And that's how, that's how we became this sort of, you know, I, I I guess very British because they're, they're a mix of, of Scottish, Welsh and English people. Um, And so I have that connection there. And then my grandmother from Japan, uh, she, she came here when she was like, 23 years old and she's been in America ever since. And so I, I have this um, very strong connection to Japan and Japanese culture as well, predominantly because of my grandmothers. Yeah. I think that's so awesome that you have so many kind of cultures to kind of draw on. It makes it, I think it makes, it makes things quite interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I do love being a mixed person. I think that Mm -hmm. um, it does leave me to be more accessible to people. I'm because I have so many cultures swirling around inside of me, (laughs) I can like interact with people from different cultures than my own Mm -hmm. with a little bit more empathy and um, non-fetishizing curiosity, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is really hard for some people to not fetishize what is other from them. But I think because I'm a mixed person and have had to deal with that um, kind of fetishizing of myself, I am eager to learn about other countries without wanting to like exoticize it or eroticize it in some kind of way as what happens to my family. So yeah, yeah, 100%. I can imagine. So I know you 
you know, we also had like a little conversation online um, off screen just about mm. um, childhood. And I know that yours was quite difficult. Um, I also had a traumatic start to my life and I had to flee my father, which I haven't really spoken about before on mm. in public. Same. But um, yeah, so uh, he was kind of like abusing um, my mum. So we went into protective accommodation and mm. I felt like a little bit confused and misplaced at times. But my mum being, you know, white British did try her best to help me understand and acknowledge my other race, which I sometimes find with friends who are also mixed race, you know, they they didn't have that. Mm. And now I can see them not struggling, but find it very difficult to engage with themselves, with their other culture as well. Right. So, um, it, it can be difficult if you're not kind of like exposed to, um, you know, all of all of your cultures, all of your kind of like your your family members in that background. Right, so, yeah. you know, if you're open to sharing, could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about your story? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty open about this um, and mostly because I want to reduce the stigma about you know, being a child of abuse or um, even dealing specifically with, you know, mental health issues as a result of childhood trauma. Um, I did also have a very abusive father and my grandfathers were also very abusive to their children. So it was Mm -hmm. clearly a cycle of some sort. I assume there must have been some of that going on above my grandfathers too, because, you know, to just suddenly be an abusive person, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. how that would develop otherwise. So I'm going to assume a cycle of abuse throughout many generations before it gets to me. And, um, and my father, I'm, I I describe myself as one of the only planned teen pregnancies because my mother was 14 and my father was 16 at the time that they got pregnant. And their major plan was that they were going to get pregnant so that they would get kicked out of their houses. Um, One, because they were too young to realize they could have just run away. And two, because they were trying to escape their abusive fathers. And so they, I guess, trauma bonded as teenagers, as, as two, you know, kids of abuse. And both of them didn't learn the tools that they needed to be able to raise children without abuse. Mm -hmm. So I took more abuse from my father and my brother um, took more abuse from my mother because he spent more time with her. Um, I was quite a bit older than my brothers, even though we're full brother and sister. So I know all of the family secrets, you know, like I know Mm. all of the bad, whereas my brother didn't get to it until a little bit later. And so a lot of his early development, you know, he may not remember some of the things that I vividly remember. Mm. Um, And we didn't move around a lot. We were first with our grandmothers and then with our, and then we lived with an aunt for a period of time. And then we lived with our mom and she chose to drop us off for vacation at my dad's house one day and then just never came back to pick us up. And it was during that time that I suffered the most amount of abuse from my dad. And four years later, one of my aunts on my mom's side took me back to, um, to protect me. And, um, and as I would try to like reconnect with my mother, I ended up being abused by her partner too. So I grew up just thinking that the people who are supposed to love you cause harm, Mm. you know, that there's very few little lights of 
in your family that don't harm you. And, um, and so, you know, I, I tended to be very guarded and very difficult. And I, what I didn't know I was going through was depression and anxiety and separation anxiety and a bunch of different things that I now know because I've dealt with it through, uh, therapy as an adult, mm-hmm. but, um, it was really hard. It's, it's, it's really hard to try to figure out your identity when you're also dealing with abusive parents, because as a, as a mixed race kid, I identify predominantly with my black side because that's what I was raised the most around. And yet it's my black parent that was the most harmful to me. Mm-hmm. So I have to deal with this weird thing of like being a part of him, but wanting to not be a part of him. And then on my Japanese side, I loved being Japanese. I love culture. I love the food. But when Japanese leave Japan, they assimilate to whatever culture they've moved to. And so I was always being told by my Japanese side, I wasn't Japanese. I was American. And I was a kid. So what I didn't understand is I was dealing with a nationalistic view of identity versus a cultural view of identity. So I thought they were telling me I wasn't Japanese ethnically, even though I had a Japanese parent. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But what they were actually saying is like, you're not Japanese because you're not from Japan. Yeah. And so I just dealt with a lot of like emotional, physical and mental abuse because I didn't no one could clearly explain to me what they meant when they were causing the harm. Yeah, I guess, you know, I I tried to to be a little bit generous in thinking that because I'm clearly from multi-generational abused parents, that that's why they weren't prepared uh, at the same time, at some point, I was able to to get out of it and break my cycle. So I have this anger and issues and baggage related to them never trying to break their um, their cycle, including to this day. I no longer speak to my living parent um, because of their denial of what yeah. they've done. And um, and then one of my parents is dead, which is a relief to me for my safety you know, I don't mm-hmm. have a, an emotional missing or connection to that parent. That parent is gone and I'm safe now. So that's been, that's, that's been a bit of the childhood, which I think is why as an adult, I so actively try to be of service and be helpful because if I had just had people help me oh, when I was younger, yeah. I think it would have been a lot easier. So um, I think I'm lucky in that I got help at a time that opened me up to being helpful versus being abusive in my own life going forward. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, it's like, it's an ongoing process because with me, you know, even though my mother experienced that, I feel like the trauma is still, you know, it's still carried out until this day, until now, even though she's not currently going through it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I said to, I say this to all of my friends, like, you know, when I become rich enough, if I ever get money, I'm literally paying for everyone to get therapy because even my mom, like if she's open to it, I would love her to get it. I would love to get it myself, you know, because I think it's so helpful to, to deal with that, to deal with that trauma, because we don't, sometimes we're not aware that we're kind of acting out what had happened to us. sometimes and I feel like I do that sometimes I feel like my mother does that sometimes and also even my partner because like your parents we kind of both came from families um 
where our fathers were abusive so then even in our relationship now when we kind of like look at things and then I kind of like he says like I say it all the time but it's like it is childhood trauma sometimes the way we behave is because of that childhood trauma and we need to deal with it it is and even when you are able to deal with it you know I I am not currently in therapy based off of not being able to afford it but when I can afford it I am actively in it yeah. and the the problem with the the downside of therapy is is to deal with your trauma you have to talk about your trauma yeah. and that sucks. You know, it hurts. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Um, and it, it re-traumatizes even as you're trying to release it. So it's, it's difficult and it's painful, but I can tell you, at least from my own experience, that every time I'm able to do it, it gets easier to get through similar triggering events. You know, yeah. um, if something like that happens, you know, with a partner or with a, uh, you know, a boss or, you know, friend or something like that, it gets a little bit easier to identify what's happening earlier on so that you can maneuver out of those situations than when you're not in therapy. So, um, that, that's why I also refer to my show as, as medicine is because Mm. in getting to talk about these things that I deal with on the racial side, um, I'm able to exercise some of those demons of feeling inadequate, feeling not enough of thinking I'm the only one who's like this, you know, yeah, all that kind of stuff. There is trauma in that as well, emotional trauma and stuff. So I I consider that a form of therapy, even if it's not, you know, with a psychologist or <laughs> someone trained to help me. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. You know, but you try to you try to offer that service um, to your community. And, and some of that is just conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Conversation can go a long way. Sometimes yeah. you don't even realize. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you know, having that kind of relationship with your parents and some of your family members, how, how did you find it when you were trying to kind of find out more about your own background and ancestry? Like, how did you find, how did you get to find out about your roots? Was it from your grandparents? Because I struggle with that. Yeah. Um, a part of it was, I was always really inquisitive about this stuff, even as a mm. young kid. And I remember brief conversations I had with my, like my black grandfather. I, I remember in seventh grade. Um, so around maybe 13 years old, I was asking him, what's the oldest person's name you remember? Because, oh, wow. because I'm also born pre-internet generation. I yeah. didn't have internet until I was um, 20 too. So um, as a 13 year old, I knew that if as long as I had names, I would eventually be able to go to these places that my family came from. And then maybe I could research these people thinking that my future self would actually like fly to like, <laughs> Texas and Louisiana and like, you know, <laughs> knock on a door of a plantation or something. Yeah. Um, and so he had given me a few names and, and then my great grandmother also was still alive and she had been born in the early 1900s. She died in 1993. So while she wasn't really speaking too much by the time um, I got to be around her, um, people had heard the stories by that point. So I've, I've heard, bits and pieces of the black side of our family, at least to know where we came from in, um, in Texas and uh, Louisiana and Missouri. So I had something, I knew that at least as an adult, I probably would get a little bit further in researching um, than I could at 13. 
Um, on the Japanese side, Japanese uh, trace their ancestry pretty far back. And, and my great grandmother, uh, who was also alive for the early parts of my life, uh, um, comes from the clan Matsumoto uh, from Samurai. And, uh, and so there is still a lot of evidence left over about them. I don't have access to it because mm-hmm. it is in Japan. But, you know, I get to talk to some of my cousins. I've been able to find, like, our family crests are in Japan are called um, kamons. Oh. I've been able to find those for my two families and, and things like that. And um, I know that should I have the resources one day, I could go to Japan and be able to gain access um, to my family, at least on the Matsumoto side, about mm. 500 years back. On the Hanioka side, which is my great-grandfather's side, um, as far back as I know, is I only know my great grandfather's parents' names. I don't know anything else. Okay. Um, but it is now that I have that, that's just a nugget. That's, you know, that's I'm going to hold on to that nugget until I get the resources to be able to go the next steps. Um, on the British side, my my nan's brother, her eldest brother, John, was like the family historian for that side. So he and he and I were very close when I was little and he would write me uh, narratives about the British side of our family mm-hmm. so that I would have them. So I knew, at least from him, that they were a mix of Spanish pirates that had been captured around um, the first Elizabethan period and were brought, you know, they were captured and brought to uh, England. And so eventually mixed into my family, which is why we're dark haired. They're, they're all black haired. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I also learned that my great grandfather was like a con man who used to work as a laborer at various uh, prep schools. So his entire family, my nan and all her siblings would move from school to school every time someone found out that he was committing crimes. (laughs) And so he would change his last name. So all I know is that the name that my family currently has is Trahan. Mm -hmm. I don't know which of the many names that he went by <laughs> was his actual <laughs> name. Um, but by the time he had kids, he was going by Trahan. Okay. Um, and so I at least have this like narrative, a handwritten narrative by my great uncle um, that, that gives me a little bit of details. And then it's through the ancestry.com app that I'm able to find out more about the Welsh side. And um, which literally just happened like last week where I found, oh, okay. you know, where they're at, where they're from. And so I hope that the next time I return, you know, I was telling you offline, I've, I have been to to London, but I haven't been to any of my other like technical homelands. Um, I hope that the next time I do go to the UK that I'm able to also do a side trip in to Wells. Um, yeah. Just to make a connection. I have a picture of a few of my great, like my great grandmother and her parents. Um, so it's interesting to see like these black-headed white people that I'm related to yeah (laughs) you know because I don't actually have a white parent I I have two white biracial parents um you know Mm -hmm. a black and white and a Japanese and white biracial parents so I my connection my direct connection to whiteness is removed by one generation so it's it's interesting to see these like like white people that I'm like "Mm, I guess I can kind of see like maybe kind of look like them but you know I don't know it's it's a it's a interesting thing to like realize how much whiteness was in my family before I came around 
Yeah, it's so interesting. And like that's listening to you talking is really inspired me. And to have that like, I don't know, initiative at age 13 to like to to get the names is just beyond me. Cause I wasn't thinking that at all <laughs> at 13. I wish I was. I wish I was that forward thinking. But um no, I think now I should try to to gather names while, you know, I still right. have older generation family members here because I yeah I'm so intrigued and I love the little stories as well like the story about you know was it your uncle who was the con man or no it was my great-grandfather but my uncle was the one who told me about it yeah yeah yeah, that actually is a little bit more of the quest than the actual like historical origin I think is you know I have stories of like you know a, a relative that may or may not have allegedly possibly killed the a family this like extra family when they found uh-huh. out that their partner was cheating on them oh you know like goodness. I have these stories yeah, like these yeah. weird stories that have kind of popped up throughout like my own investigation about family or um you know people who also like me have like that family historian mentality yeah and they'll 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 dig up these stories and you're just like you know it makes these names on a paper into these fully formed Come people that I think also might indicate something about my own personality like uh, you know, yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. something about them uh got all the way down into me and I think part of the reason why I was so active about it at a young age is because I grew up entirely around mixed people the only mixed people the only people that I was around that weren't mixed was my grandmother's um mm. predominantly and my grandfather's when I did see them uh everybody else was mixed my dad and all his siblings and all my cousins my mom and her siblings and and I don't have cousins on that side I don't have first cousins on that side but I have second cousins all of us are mixed so I didn't know this was different I didn't know this was indifferent to the rest of the mono racial population until I got out into the world and realized there wasn't that many mixed people around me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that curiosity was about like, you know, I had some cousins that were black and Italian and I had siblings that were black and Mexican and I had, you know, Japanese and white cousins and British and black cousins and, you know, British and American black cousins specifically. Um, you know, that was, I wanted to know how we had access to each other given mm-hmm. how far apart we we're all born, you know, we were born in different countries. So I think that's what sparked it when I was so young. And I'm just, I am grateful for the internet now because I wouldn't know near what I know now had that not happened, but I did have to get all the way into 22 until that existed. (laughs) Yeah. I can imagine. Um, So on your militantly mixed podcast, you asked the question, what do you love most about being mixed race mixed race so I want to turn the tables and ask you (laughs) what you love most about being mixed race I think I think that's a very fluid question which Uh is um it's one of those ways that I'm able to end the show uh, hopefully hopefully on a positive note with most of my guests because sometimes we do talk about difficult aspects of our identity Mm -hmm. and um I think for me now to answer that question today what I think I love most about it is my access to everyone Mm -hmm. even people outside of what I'm mixed with is I have now developed you know, two and three quarters years of episodes. I've had 
you know, well over 150 some odd conversations in including things that I've people I've talked to that haven't made it onto the show or mm-hmm. I, if I've guested somewhere. Um, I have a weekly hangout with mixed people that between 12 and 15 people each week show up and I get to see mixed people from all over the place. Mm-hmm. Just. I don't know. It's just like I have access now that I wouldn't have had yeah. if my mixedness didn't inspire me to connect to other mixed people. And I think also it gives me a way to talk to people that are different from me or that I am different from with empathy. I I know what I go through with all my heritage, you know, mixed up inside of me. What do you go through with everything that's mixed up inside of you? And I I really love that because I I I don't know because I'm not monoracial, but I feel like monoracial people don't necessarily feel this like wealth of culture yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas I literally can code switch from Japanese to black to British to, you know, whatever in any given moment throughout the day, you know, we talked offline about my tea drinking. I do drink tea the British way throughout most of the day, but at night I drink it the Japanese style and I'm very ceremonial Mm -hmm. about both ways that I drink it because it's important to both of my cultures. And that is just this weird little thing that I get to do. Yeah. because of my multiple heritages um, that other people may not get to do. And I, I think that is what's so wonderful about my heritage as a mixed person. It is. Thank you. I loved that answer. And I, I was nodding <laughs> away because I can agree. And I, lo- <laughs> I love the access as well. I think it's great because there's always a story and, you know, you might not be able to relate to every single story, but sure. like within some stories, there might be a slight similarity or connection mm-hmm. that you can kind of create with someone. Yeah. Like, have you ever had a moment where you don't know it's about to happen, but it, for me, it happens if I go to a place where there's like either taiko drums, Japanese taiko drums playing, mm-hmm. like say like a food festival or something mm-hmm. or um, like African drums and you'll just hear them in the background and suddenly your body just is affected and you're yes. moving and it yes. feels old it feels yeah. like something mm-hmm. you've always known but you don't mm-hmm. really know how yeah that is what I think is what is good about this investigation and through militantly mix and and having conversations with the mixed people is is tapping into those spaces that are way way far removed from me but it's still a part of me ancestral. and I yeah on an ancestral level and I need access to it and sometimes the way I have access to it is drinking a cup of tea properly for the mm. first time or you know mm. hearing taiko drums or or whatever you know there's these moments these things that I've gotten to have that have that feel familiar even as I've had generations remove me from it yeah for me, it's the heat because I don't know if you know London is cold. <laughs> and I need, yeah, I need the sun. So I don't know what it is about me, but like it makes me feel so good like yeah. to have the sun and I need it like a lot. So <laughs> living in the UK is right. great sometimes, but it's like my body from deep inside yearns for yeah. the sun and hot weather. Do you know what your your black origin is? Um, only um, 
from my father really um I know there is some Irish in there on my mm-hmm. black side which mm-hmm. is um Jamaican um oh, Jamaican, okay. yeah yeah so and I think I think that Irish people they didn't I wouldn't say flee to Jamaica but they there was a lot I think a lot of Irish people went over to Jamaica at some point I'm not sure when but um you know there was that whole thing in the UK um uh, what was it no dogs no blacks no Irish the signs yeah. yeah so I think maybe Irish people kind of related to like those experiences from yeah. black people and maybe in, in Jamaica it was a combination of poor Irish and Irish enslavers. Okay. Um, and so you, you will find a lot of Jamaicans do have an ancestral Irish heritage. Yeah. And then, and that could be, you know, like I say, enslavement or just because they're sharing an Island. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think also similarly, which is really weird. Um, about accents because we we're talking about accents earlier yeah. Irish and Jamaican accents if you if you can do one you can do, you the do other both practice <laughs> yeah. uh, because they actually have very similar tonation <laughs> even do. though they're a little bit different whereas if you can do a really good Spanish accent you might not be able to do a Jamaican or Irish mm. unless you're very very um, like your brain is really really open to it <laughs> because they have very different uh, I think it's tonation style. Yeah, so it's yeah. really hard to recreate them. But yeah, if you Definitely. can do Irish, you can do Jamaican. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they practice. say ting, ting as well. They both say ting. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> and true. And I imagine the Jamaican <laughs> accent is probably born of a little bit of the Irish. Yeah, yeah. Here in America, there's pockets of American English accents that are, depending on where it's at, is a derivative of Old English or, or Irish. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. I love it. Oh, I'm well, a big you. old nerd for it. Like yeah. I can't even oh. like I could go on a tangent. So we I'll, need to have a conversation I'll offline shut up because for now. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I'm intrigued. No, I'd love yeah. to learn more. So yeah, definitely. We need to catch up in person. Well, Absolutely. not in person, but yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Um, so you also have two other brilliant podcasts, Blurred Comix. Thank you for sharing uh what blurred uh kind of stand for as <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. Um and by Furious. Uh, so why is it important that the topics or themes of both of these podcasts are discussed with a wider audience, do you think? Um, I think again, it's it's just this idea of like needing to have a tribe, whatever mm. that means. Um, and for me, as a person, you know. Most of us on this planet, white or or brown, um, come from tribal people, you yeah. know, and so we have a tendency, I think that even as we've become, quote unquote, civilized, that we, we still need people that are like us. We're just by nature. That's how borders are drawn. That's how different, you know, like in group out group stuff is created and, mm-hmm. and stuff is that we, we naturally need to find people that are like us to feel normal. Mm-hmm. And um, in the mixed race community, a big problem that many of us feel no matter what mix we are is either a, not a valid member of one of our, you know, one or the other of our heritages or um, not enough of. For some reason, we don't think we're more than we think we're less than mm-hmm. um, or not enough of each. And and that is what causes so much damage for us. Um, but when you find someone who has a similar experience to you, when you have a conversation with another mixed person and whatever they say makes you go, oh, my gosh, me, too. 
that is starting to heal whatever damage you have. And that translates over into Blurred Comics and, and by Furious in the same kind of ways as, is, as I mentioned at the start of the show, as a kid who grew up in the hood in Long Beach, a black kid or a mixed black kid, you couldn't just read comics and be cool. You mm. were you were a nerd. You you were gonna made, be made fun of. So I had to like live in the closet, <laughs> and <laughs> for lack of a better way of thinking of it, uh, live in the closet as a comic book geek. And I loved comic books because from them I got my sense of justice. You know, I got to see a hero defeat a villain. Mm -hmm. I got to see um, a regular person stand up for the justice of somebody else. And in those kinds of stories, I think I formed my my value system and my beliefs about what is justice and and how to take care of people. I have this natural inclination to to help people. I think because the characters that I loved and identified with the most as a comic book kid were those type of people, those people that may not have, like, I guess I prefer a Marvel hero to a DC hero because a Marvel okay. hero is a regular person who gains yeah. power yeah. and a DC person is a God on earth. And yeah. for me, I'm a regular person. And with any of the, my own efforts, perhaps I can gain power to help other people. And so with other black nerds, you know, you might figure out what somebody else was into, but then you had like an obligation to make fun of them for it. As long as you weren't also exposed mm -hmm. um, in the way that I grew up. So I have this friend from fourth grade. Um, we, we grew up together. I used to hang out in his house because his mom used to babysit me. And he's also a mixed person. He's black, white, biracial. And we've known each other since we were 10 years old. We are now 43. Uh, we did not know that the other one, even though I grew up hanging out in his house every single day for years, we did not know that the other one read comics. No way. No, because <laughs> we weren't like our culture was such that we weren't allowed to as black people. We were not allowed to. That's some white shit. Yeah. Um, and we weren't allowed to do it. And so we had a conversation. We were in our late 20s, early 30s, I think. And um, by that point, I was kind of letting it fly a little bit I was kind of telling people I was into comics and we get into these more conversations mostly about being mixed but then every now and then the comic book thing would creep out and, and you know then I find out about his secret stash and he finds out about my secret stash <laughs> and we're like you know we've known each other for 20 years at this point wow. how did we not know this about each other and it kind of reframed our friendship Mm. Um, and so we decided to start recording those conversations basically which is essentially what blurred comics is is it's he and I thinking we're going to talk about like we're thinking we're going to be real podcasters and we're going to have like questions and answers <laughs> and stuff but really it's just two friends from childhood like rediscovering each other now that we know this thing mm. that the other one that we share that we didn't talk about um and so i think what's fun about that is just what it gave me is it gave me a new layer to this friendship that I've had since I was 10 and I'm 43 now. And <laughs> it's like way more meaningful now that we know this stuff about each other and are able to share it uh, than we, than we would have been had we remained the kind of friends we were um, when we were 10, you know? And, um, and through that, we have met other blurs, black nerds that, um, that feel the same. And we, we call it, Blurred Comics, it's spelt B-L-E-R-D for Blurred, uh, C-O, and then we capitalize M-I-X because we're mixed, E-D. 
So instead of comics, like, like, C, like with the Comixed. C, we put comics yeah. with an X because we were also adding the fact that nice. an additional layer to our Black nerddom is that we're also mixed. mixed. And so, you know, some other stuff comes in there sometimes in terms of our identities and, and how we process some of the information. Um, and we've met tons of other blurs and we've gotten to be involved in comics in deeper ways now as a result. And now I know like actual comic book creators who I used to read when I was little, like I've gotten to talk to these people now. And, um, and so it's given me a lot that way. And then similarly with by furious and it is currently on hiatus because I was really struggling to, I wasn't finding that community as easily as I was able to find the militantly mixed community or the comics community. And so I, um, I am getting really close to being ready to to bring it back because there's mm-hmm. a few new conversations I'm I'm ready to start having, but it was it was making me so depressed yeah. <laughs> to have these conversations with people who just like we just can't win as as black and brown queer people we just can't find our toeholds in a way that like white specifically cisgendered male gay people Mm. have like they seem to have the corner the market cornered on gayness Mm -hmm. and you know we're we're in there too (laughs) we just want to be able to talk about that kind of stuff and so I was having a hard time actually finding people comfortable to even risk having that conversation whether they did it anonymously anonymously or not I was I was finding that emotionally I was more broken after every conversation than I was on the mix side. So I'm going to start when I start that back, I'm going to be a little bit more forgiving of myself. And rather than Mm -hmm. have it really scheduled, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll have about five episodes planned and then I'll release them and then give myself another really long break (laughs) (laughs) to, to try to do it again, because that's an area of my identity that I still I struggle with a bit as a, um, you know, I'm a very bisexual person who happened to partner with a straight guy yeah. as, you know, as my main partner and I am polyamorous, but I'm currently not in a headspace or an emotional space to comfortably have additional partners. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm feeling very impostery sometimes, Okay, <laughs> you know, I'm a polyamorous person who doesn't like people. So how am I going to have multiple partners? Yeah. And I'm a bisexual who is married to a man. So yeah. I, like every now and then I have these issues and I'm just like, ah. yeah. um, but I'm getting a little bit closer to being ready to, to, to talk a little bit more Good. about it than I have been over the last year or so. But there, I still think they're important. It's also Definitely. why I haven't deleted the show because mm-hmm. I, I think the conversations that we have recorded and are available are still important and they still carry. And in those episodes I will eventually find people that will want to talk about additional things in that community yeah because I listened to your episode the national coming out day one um Mm, and I felt like it was nice to hear you talking about it because I feel like if someone were listening and did feel like they wanted to kind of come out needed you know Mm. support and safe place or just somebody who might share a similar experience I think mm-hmm. it it's it's really good it's a really good thing so I'm glad that you want to carry it on um and if someone was struggling to you know come out do you would you give them what advice would you give them I for me it's always been 
I mean, at, at the very front of it, I think it is hurtful <laughs> that mm. we even have to come out. I mm-hmm. think, you know, it generally, if we could just exist, however we are and people figure it out from there. <laughs> great. But that, that it has to be this weird ceremonious thing that we do <laughs> of like, I'm out, you know, like <laughs> it, it's, it's like almost personally offensive to yeah. me that that's even an issue because straight people don't have to go through this, you know, right. or they don't have to tell their parents, mom, dad, I like people of the opposite gender. Like, it's just Mm. so bizarre that we should even be focused on that because I think any loving parent would rather their child be in a happy partnership than what genitals their Mm -hmm. child's partner has. Right. So on the front, I will say, I hate that we even have to do this. And so with that, I say, if you don't want to, and you just want to live your life and people figure it out or not figure it out, feel comfortable in doing that. That is more of the way that I kind of did it. Um, I didn't really come out as bisexual. I did come out more as poly than I did as a bisexual. Um, But for those people who feel like healing will happen once they, if it is more ceremoniously announced or if they do come out, what I want them to do is start small (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because you need time to process the way people react to you. Because the thing is, the reason why we have so much fear in coming out is because as almost all of us in, in both Western and Eastern cultures don't have these conversations about uh, gender and sexuality throughout our upbringing. It's usually something that is like waited, you know, wait until the last possible second. And then you might get a sex talk from your parents, which is going to be very awkward and uncomfortable. Mm. Whereas if we, if we were more open about um, health and sexuality and gender early on one, we wouldn't have to ceremoniously come out. And then it would be easier to identify which of the people you love are going to be okay to come out to and safe to come out to and which ones aren't. Yeah. Which is so because we don't have those conversations, we usually live in fear that everybody we love is not going to be a safe space, Mm -hmm. even if we really hope they are. So I always recommend that if you, if you are going to come out, you got to kind of start small and in a weird way, I almost recommend coming out to a stranger before a loved one. Hmm. Um, because, and, and not like a stranger, stranger, like me, you know, maybe not someone on the bus, you know, (laughs) okay. You know, (laughs) you know, maybe someone like a peripheral person who Mm. doesn't necessarily know everybody, you know, but you know, you can chat generally enough, um, just to kind of tease it out. It may not work for everybody, but it may at least tell you where you're going to choke up on saying it. And also, seeing how you react in response to somebody reacting um, might prepare you a little bit better because if you, if you do it the big way and you're just like your whole family is together Mm. and you're just like, yo, I'm gay now. And everybody is just sitting there going, Oh my gosh. And then you have to deal with all kinds of people's emotions Mm -hmm. at one time, which was a big way of people coming out in the nineties when I was like coming of age, Um, you know, people would have these parties and they would come out and (laughs) it could be like so much emotions to deal with. So I think, you know, start small, work your way around the community as much as you can. Like if you're going to do it or like I did just live it 
and people will figure it out and you'll yeah. find out who cares and who doesn't like who cares about you and you being happy and who is more concerned about your sexuality because those are the people who are going to hit you up on the dms and the text messages asking absolutely. you ignorant questions you know absolutely because like one of my best friends one of my best friends basically came out to me and um they told me and I was like I kind of was like I already kind of knew and they were mm-hmm. like well, how and I was like because I know you because we all, are, we all think we're ninjas when it comes to sexuality <laughs> and it's ne- it's usually not that much of a shock <laughs> yeah. yeah but um yeah I was glad that you know they could have that conversation with me sure, and that yeah. you know they felt like I was a safe person to talk to and non-judgmental because I'm not you know I wouldn't That's be good. Um, and I feel like if I, you know, one day, if I were to have children, I would want them to feel exactly the same. Um, and I give them an option to be exactly who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And I want them to feel like they can talk to me about anything and express themselves and be their true selves. So I think that's really important, um, yeah. to, tr- to try and do. And I think that's something that maybe, I don't know, my kind of generation and, um, you know even the older generations than me kind of like are changing it for like it's it's different yeah. to how our families were how our parents were and we're kind of like more open now to right you well know, there accept. still is a lot of problematic folks out there and mm. and prejudice and things like that I am seeing now like children able to kind of come out as an earlier thing because um, whether people believe it or not we did know when we were, (laughs) you know, like we just did. We didn't know what we knew. You know, like for me as a kid, if I look back, I remember chasing little girls around to hold Mm. their hands as much as I was changing, chasing little boys around to hold Mm -hmm. their hands. You know, I just also learned early on what was okay to talk about and what Mm -hmm. wasn't. Um, So I got to sort of, it is a lot easier for a girl that is bisexual than a boy that is bisexual in that girl's, can be socialized to hold hands and be more effective yeah. with their friends. Yeah. And in my case, there was just an extra layer of joy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. with that interaction than, yeah. you know, maybe. Um, so I think, you know, boys do have a little bit tougher, True. but I hope that as this current generation is starting to come out earlier, yes, or at least talk about sexuality and, and health and gender earlier, that um, that transition to, to being who they are, you know, is going to be a lot smoother and hopefully healthier too. 100%. And I liked in your episode as well, um, the coming out episodes that you did offer, you know, yourself as um, being a safe person to talk to confidentially. And I think that's so important as well to have somebody, like you said, to just talk to who, who you don't really know too well, but who can you know, you can just express whatever you have on your Absolutely. mind. Absolutely. I, and the reason why I do that, and it has happened. I've had people responding to that episode who have emailed me or yeah. I've had even, even on the mix side, because I also have sort of a coming out mix type story in okay. an early episode of Militantly Mixed, because to some people you do kind of have to come out <laughs> as mixed to people yeah. because um, you may you may present differently than you identify and that is confusing for people. And in that you do kind of have to come out. So I do extend myself that way in so much as I'm capable, because obviously if like a hundred people all reach out to me on the same day, I wouldn't get to everybody, but um, that I want to 
I want people to know, and especially with queer folks and in, in, in specifically, I think we need safety, not just in like the emotional support way. We need physical safety mm. in a lot of cases too. Um, some of us come from cultures that don't even have a word for homosexual, you know, and, um, and have very strong feelings against it. Some it's still illegal in some places. It is still punishable by death in some places. Oh. So when it comes to queerness, I say, I don't care if you are on the other side of the world and we've never met and the likelihood that we'll ever meet in person is very, very small. I would rather you feel safe to come out to me, this stranger who is going to hold that in my heart with you and take, you know, like try to be as thoughtful and understanding as possible and supportive um, than you trying it out on a loved one who's going to reject you. Mm. You know, I, I, I know I'm not going to be able to save everybody on the planet, but I want to know that of the people that I touch in my life, that I am a safe place for them. So I do, I absolutely mean it. And it has happened uh, several times um, since releasing that episode. And, and that episode's a couple of years old at this point. Mm. Um, I have had it pop up and there's some people who's I'm still maintain, maintaining that secret you know, in terms of, um, is some people that I've known who have, who've come out, uh, and, and for some people who I've actually become internet friends with (laughs) because of it, you know, um, I have, I have this very, I have a literal global community now as a result of these podcasts and, and I am, and do try to be the safest place possible with the exception of if you just want to be racist, I'm not a safe space for you. So don't try it. <laughs> so moving on to your other businesses, you also have a mask store and you spoke about your love for comics. So you have a comic bookshop, which is mm-hmm. really cool. So why did you decide to make and sell face masks? Well, apart from the obvious reason of coronavirus. Yeah, well, that was that was sort of how I was dealing with my anxiety. So mm. um, I have mentioned and touched a little bit on mental health issues. I, I suffer from two different forms of depression. Um, uh, I am a I have I suffer from chronic persistent depression, which means I will be depressed from the day I was born till the day I die. Mm-hmm. On a chemical level, I suffer from depression. And then mm-hmm. I experience occasional bouts of what is referred to as major depression, which means something, a triggering event or or even not, um, an extra stack of depression kind of hits me for a period of time. And that can last anywhere from a couple months to a couple years. Um, and uh, the last really, really major, major bout that I had that lasted about three years started to end in the first year of me doing militantly mixed. The show really helped dig me out of that bout of major depression. But mm. the the twin cousin to my depression is anxiety. I it is uh, I have a couple of different forms of anxiety as well, just sort of a general one, um, which makes me feel like impending doom at all times, even though I, you know, sometimes can laugh. Uh, And then I also have a social anxiety connected to interacting with large groups of people, which is why podcasting is so brilliant for me because I can just Mm -hmm. get on zoom and I don't have to like talk in person with people. Mm -hmm. I also don't like to be touched very much. So this is another level that helps create a barrier between people just randomly touching me. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> um, you know, Japanese and British family, we weren't a whole lot of touchers. So it's it uh-huh. a weird, it's a weird thing for me. Um, and, uh, when the coronavirus hit and we were going into lockdown and I was just watching how irresponsible people were being mm. or more, more than anything, how individual people were being, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I am Japanese. I was raised partially in a culture of the village before the individual, like that is a very um, Eastern mentality of um, Japanese specifically has, has this phrase that, that translates into uh, the nail that sticks out gets the hammer. Mm. So it's not a gentle way for you to be trained to comply. But the idea is that if you stand out, you will be smashed down versus you know being allowed to stand out and so japanese culture is very you know don't stand out don't don't inflict yourself on people you know like they're mm-hmm. you on a recent episode of of militantly mix a, another mixed japanese was like you know people don't eat on the subway or you know whatever like they don't play music or talk on phones they, they're concerned about the atmosphere of the people around them and that is a culture that i was raised in but i'm also american which is a very individualistic me mm-hmm. first me first place and i was looking at all these me first people and thinking like asia is going to get out of this a lot quicker you know all of mm-hmm. east asia and possibly parts of Southeast Asia are going to get out of this a lot quicker than we are because we are way too individualistic. So Mm -hmm. I started to make masks to donate to different communities that I thought um, could really use a support in particular, our indigenous communities here in the States. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's already bad enough. They were put on reservations, not (laughs) on their national natural lands, but they also aren't given as many resources. And so they were getting hit really hard. And I started to make masks for like the Navajo Nation and the Zuni tribes and and stuff. And then I um, some folks had asked me to make them and I was making them for friends. And and then it was getting to the point of like I would have needed a little bit of financial support to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. But the process of making the masks was also how I was process- dealing with my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um so I ended up making a website to start selling them. And then I put a, a third of the donation, a third of the purchase price was going into donations to various um, black and brown communities that were being impacted by COVID. Um, so I, I pick a different one each month and then I just let everything from the month gather and then I send it out. Um, and uh, and then some of the money goes back into buying more fabrics for donation things because I still send donation masks out as well to different okay, places. Cool. Uh, so yeah, that's that's why I started that business. That is a business I absolutely hope fails because I would oh. like, <laughs> you know, like, um, I don't want to. I don't want there to be this risk forever, and I would like yes. it to fail this year yeah. in 2021 so right. that I can um, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but until such time as my anxiety needs me to produce them so that I can deal with what's happening, I will keep masks by Maine. Um, Maine is my, my nickname or what people who know me personally call me. So masks by Maine.com. And then uh, Gulf Coast Cosmos is the lifelong dream. I have wanted to have a comic book shop um, predominantly in a black community, similar to what I grew up in. Nice. Since I was an adult or since I was an adult and was finally admitting to people, I was a comic book nerd. I wanted to have a space because when I was getting comics as a little kid, I was going to a Korean liquor store, which are very common in black hoods. And um, there would be a spinner rack 
that would have like, you know, five or six different comics. And that was it. I didn't get a whole comic book shop to go to. In fact, I don't think I went to an actual comic book shop until I was an adult. Um, but I used to go to comic cons when I was little and stuff like that. Oh, okay. And um, so I was always really into it. And um, I was telling my idea to a friend of mine who just so happened at the same time to be in a program with the city of Houston and in Texas that was um, supporting black owned businesses to rebuild this part of the city that had kind of been sort of gentrified after Hurricane Katrina and then the gentrifiers left. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's just kind of needing to be rebuilt and, and, and things as far as I understand. Um, And so I'm telling him my story and he's like, I have to tell you something. And then he was basically doing the same thing that I was talking about, but already in progress in his Mm -hmm. city. So we got to talking about it and decided that um, it would take me a lot longer to do that here in Los Angeles than it would have if I move to Houston and I'm pretty nomadic in general, anyway, I'll pick up and move. Um, if I have a reason to mm-hmm. without any hesitation. So I'm was planning to move to Houston last year, but of course, coronavirus, uh, derailed everything. Um, so we decided to open online first. So on August 15th, we opened, um, gulfcoastcosmos.com and we've already been doing business as a online comic book store. We also have a YouTube channel where we interview different, uh, artists and creators, comic book creators, uh, which um, I hope to grow a little bit. We, you know, we don't have a whole lot of followers on that yet because we're still pretty new, but um, I have access to really awesome people in the comic book industry. So I hope people start to figure out that they can come to our YouTube channel to, to look at those interviews. Um, and then we're planning on opening, you know, barring health and safety, we're planning on physically opening in Houston this summer or 2020. One. So cool. So now moving on to my favorite part of the show, which is pets, more specifically cats. So can you tell us a bit more about your life with pets so far? So as I teased in the beginning, I was anti-cat until I had a cat. <laughs> and um, my sole cat is Revan, the the first cat we got. Technically mm. a cat that I got as a gift from my, my husband. But if if it was possible to have given birth to a cat, <laughs> Revan is that cat. He oh. and I are so similar. We are both crotchety curmudgeons who don't like <laughs> to be bothered by anybody else. And um, but he's my soul cat. I absolutely adore him. And I've seen I'm also referring to him as a him, but he is mostly male. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, he he was he did have he does have a penis and he was born with one very large testicle but mm. he also had one ovary and half of a uterus so oh, when they cool. went in to do his neuter they went to go look for the other testicle because they're like oh it must not have dropped yet mm-hmm. but in fact what they found was a uterus and uh an ovary wow. um, so they had him genetically tested to see like what he is like what gen yeah you know, what's going on with him um because at the time that we had discovered this um none of the doctors had seen a hermaphroditic cat before. yeah <laughs> and um and one of the doctors was like 60 years in the biz so it's amazing wow. he hadn't encountered one um but yeah he he tests as having more testosterone than the cat equivalent to estrogen so he mm. is classified as mostly male he's basically like 75 25 Mm-hmm. which is bizarre that's um, so cool 
Yeah, it is really cool. He was also named after, and going back to the geekiness, um, a Star Wars extended universe character, which is a um, a light side Jedi that became a dark side Sith Lord and then came back into being a light side um, person. But his name was Darth Revan. And mm. it was a character, the main character in, in the Star Wars uh, Knights of the Old Republic video game and so you got to pick which gender you played the character oh cool we named revan before we knew revan was that's amazing ambiguous yeah Um, so it was kind of cool that he ended up with a name that is genderly ambiguous and he is genderly ambiguous in the canon though in star wars canon revan is male which again because i still refer to him as a him and he has a penis you know Mm -hmm. there's parallels with with the darth revan for real. And then <laughs> um, we got a second one because we just thought Revan might need a playmate. And that is mm-hmm. Rain, who was mm-hmm. named for the apprentice of Darth Bane, which is a real big badass in the Sith, Sith uh, history. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is my husband's soul cat. Mm. They are, she's just waiting for all of us to die so that her and my husband can live <laughs> She's all of seven pounds, but she's clearly the alpha of the house, including over me sometimes, which is really distressing. Oh, no. And um, she, like, if he's sick, she'll stand guardian at his side. And if you try to come near him, she'll growl, but she's seven pounds. It's amazing. <laughs> she's got so much personality. Um, and the two of them are inseparable. It's It's oh. actually worrisome to see them paired as hardcore as they are um and then we had ronin which was the sweetest cat i've ever had but we lost him two years ago um Mm -hmm. or near near two years now um and that one i'm still not quite recovered like i can barely say his name without getting emotional Mm -hmm. um he's my sweet little baby he's my forehead bumper uh also named for a a dark side character but also secretly a Japanese samurai character because I'm Japanese and I needed yeah. to get one in there. Uh, <laughs> but we lost him two years ago. And uh, we also had a stray that we took on named Ruin, um, R-U-U-I-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she was just a mess health-wise. She was just a mess. And she was sleeping on my patio for two weeks. And we brought her in to avoid her freezing when there was a freeze in town. And I fell in love with her right away. We got her fixed up. You know, she had a broken tooth that we had to get repaired. And so she was, she became mine really quickly. And we lost her in 2014, which prompted us getting the kittens who I still refer to as the kittens, even though they're seven years old or near seven <laughs> years old is a uh, Creighton Crea also named for dark Lords of the Sith. Mm-hmm. Um, they are little uh, ones, black and white or ones gray and white, and they couldn't be more different, but they come from the same litter. Mm-hmm. And in response to every time my husband lost a cat as a kid, his mom would bring home a box of kittens I brought home two kittens (laughs) because we lost Ruin. And so we went from four to three to five. And now we're back down to four because we lost Ronan um, in 2018, which, or yeah, 2018, 2019. We lost Ronan in 2019. Um, But it feels like last year because we've been in a, you know, lockdown for a year and it seems it's hard to think about it. It being nearly two years. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, but those are my babies. Their personalities are all distinct and crazy. My two girls fight for alpha all the time. Um, 
my boys are always cuddled up in a big old cuddle puddle. I don't know why <laughs> anybody thinks not to have two boys, but I've had three at one point and they were always cuddled up together. So they're my little sweet babies and I, I could not live without them. Mm, so, um, so I know, you know, we brief, briefly spoke about um, our sweet fair babies who are no longer mm-hmm. with us. And as mm-hmm. I've mentioned, my cat also um, got euthanized. Uh, yeah. at, I, I feel like it was last month, but like you, no, it was two months ago. Like this whole 2020 has just been a blur. Yeah. So I find it hard to keep track of time, yeah. but um, it wasn't too long ago. Um, and ha- I was literally laying on the floor just in tears when oh, yeah. kind of gave me the news because even though I kind of, did have an inkling and expect that it could happen like when it Mm. does happen you even though you've tried to mentally prepare for it sometimes it's just hard to accept do you had did you have any like coping strategies that you Mm. could maybe share with what you kind of did not really because I was fighting back tears just now even just bringing my my little uh uh force ghosts is what we refer to them as um Mm. Yeah, we, I still struggle with it because they, you know, I think with cats in particular, probably more so with like just people in your life is like these animals didn't ask for me to keep them, you know, Mm -hmm. they, I am a hundred percent responsible for their livelihood. So even as it's something I can't do anything about, you know, illness and age um, being the reason why they had to go, I just like, I feel so much guilt And Mm. it's just circle, like they probably had a longer life with me than they would have had out on the street, but, um, you know, it, it's still really tough. And, and this is what bothers me about people who don't understand relationships with cats is, is that they, they are so, you, they have such unique personalities Mm -hmm. and the things that you do with one, you don't necessarily do with the other. And so like those routines are gone now. Like, yeah what Ronan and I used to do doesn't exist anymore because none Mm. of my other cats do what he did. And, um, and so it's, it's really, it's still, it's like, it's fresh. It is literally as fresh today as it was when he was gone. So I did the thing, you know, where I cried for days and, you know, laid in the dark and all that kind of stuff Mm. too. And then I eventually had to get back to work or whatever, but Mm -hmm. you know, the mere mention of his name or like we saw a picture of him this morning and um, and he, when he was all furry and little baby and Mm -hmm. even that, like, so, I mean, I think grief, we don't give grief enough credit or enough time Mm -hmm. as a, you know, as people like we, like you got to go back to work right away or you got to go and do this and all that kind of stuff. Um, But you really have to give yourself time to grieve and you don't have to be, you don't have to feel bad about how long it takes for you to get over, you know, like, or even just like get through the day if, if not get over. Cause I think get over is, is inaccurate. Yes, definitely. Um, I was really triggered two days ago, um, which is why I'm a, probably a little bit more emotional today than, which I hate to be emotional in front of people, but so I'm fighting it really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the very clinic that euthanized Ronan two years ago sent me an auto-generated email to say Ronan is well past his wellness check. Oh no. And so that like just messed me up so bad. Right. Because I'm thinking like you were the people, my initial reply reaction. And luckily it was a no reply 
email address that mm-hmm. sent it, I wrote back, but you're the ones who killed him. Mm-hmm. Because like I was in my feelings in the yeah, moment. Like, and of course, I don't think that they killed him. I obviously it was a medical decision and we we were there and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But but that was like my initial reaction because it was such a shock that yeah. the very the very clinic that did the deed also sent me like, hey, he needs right. a wellness check. Um I did end up sending them a separate email to their correct email address after the fact, talking about just like, do you understand how much we grieve like mm-hmm. these animals? So it's really irresponsible to keep us in your system for things like that. If um, mm-hmm. if you should definitely have records of them being euthanized in their clinic. So I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. I like with my husband growing up, it's getting new kittens that helps him deal with the pain and stress of the loss of an older cat. For me, I just, I hold on to things forever. So mm-hmm. it is just like basically r- the routine catches up before the grief is yeah. over or yeah. comes down. Um, yeah, that's what it is for me. It's just me like, too. there are babies. They're, yeah. they're so precious and I love them. And because my cat was black as well, I still like, if I'm in my house and it's dark, I yeah. still tread carefully and I'm like, yes, absolutely. why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> I don't need to do it anymore, but yeah. oh, oh, I'm but feeling we, emotional as well. Just talking to you. Yeah, it sucks. But also like it helps to talk to other people who mm-hmm. get it because it's so hard to like, I had a friend that lost her grandmother at the same, like similar time that I lost mm-hmm. my cat and I'm sitting there grieving my cat. And she's like, but my grandma, you know, was like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But also like, I, I have grieved my cats yeah. more than I have grieved literal family members. Yeah. Like, so this is a real, this is an important relationship, uh-huh. even though it may feel one-sided to someone who never has had a cat. Um, you know, when I'm sick, one of my cats lays on my chest and purrs really hard and keeps me awake if I need to be kept awake. Like, you know, I've been woken up from passing out before because my cat realized something was wrong, couldn't wake me up. And so he bit me in my head and I woke up. Wow. Like they they are really in tune. They are giving back. It's just that they give it back in a different way. And so if you grieve them, you can grieve them till the day you go and yeah. it would be just as reasonable 100 percent. i i agree it's true it's so true wow that's so amazing um how about the story that you just shared about your cat biting <laughs> you i'm just intrigued like this is wow yeah, it just shows I, how amazing they are they are they know what's up and like you can tell when they know something's wrong like, yeah when they get really sniffy out of <laughs> yeah. part of your body you should probably check that because dogs have been known to detect cancer in their people and things like that. Like there's definitely something to it. And like that particular time where Revan bit me in the head to wake me up. um, I remember roughly when I kind of passed out, I I was, you know, I was really sick. And because of that, we were able to wake up and go to the doctor. Wow. Um, You know, I might've been fine. I might not have, but what I do know is that I was definitely fine because mm-hmm. my cat woke me up <laughs> that's amazing so they're they're smart they're they really are how do you cope with multiple cats in a multiple cat household because <laughs> <laughs> it, it can be quite a lot 
I guess. It is a lot. It yeah. was a lot better when we had a house versus an apartment. When yeah. We back to LA, we ended up in a in a one bedroom apartment, which is a lot of living beings to be in such a small yeah. place. Um, I do feel, unfortunately, like I do think it probably affects their health a little negatively being in such mm-hmm. a small space. But I, I hope that we can rectify that when we move to Houston. Yeah. Um, but uh you know, you always have to have one extra litter box than you have cats, whether or not they will use them all. The important thing is not making them territorial over their okay. litter boxes. Um, that was something I learned from a vet and it literally changed our, our, our household overnight. When oh, we wow. Um, even if they also use the one same box, it's something psychologically for them about having multiple boxes that, um, mm. that reduces a lot of the, the strife between them. Um, I prioritize my cats over people, so I don't have people over too often. And if they are over, they understand that cats have priority, which Mm -hmm. I think does help them too, that they know I'm going to protect them over. I've kicked people out of my house for me not liking quite how they've treated my cats. Cats, Yeah. Um, definitely will end a friendship over that too. No Mm -hmm. problem. Um, you know, you give them their own special things, make sure that whatever activity that triggers them for hunting and playfulness that you do, <laughs> like, you know, one of our cats is a string cat. Another cat is a light as a, you know, red laser cat, a uh, hair tie, you know, rubber band kind of cat. Like you just make sure you have something for each of whatever their things yeah. are. Um, and yeah. And then mostly let them run that view because they'll be happier that yeah yeah definitely they are I call them cat bosses like yeah. the section of my website that I call cat bosses and it's just like the picture of all the cats that I look because <laughs> yeah. I literally feel like when I cat sit I feel like I'm literally like going there as like a servant and mm-hmm. they're the boss they're telling me yeah. what to do that is a frequent hashtag for me too. Like, yeah, you know, that moment where you got to pee, but one of them decided to crawl on your lap. So you don't, you're not going to go pee anytime soon. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> hashtag cat boss. <laughs> yep. I guess I'm sitting here now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> too funny. Well, I've really, really, really enjoyed uh, this conversation with you. And I can literally go on for <laughs> ages, I think. Thank you. This so, great. Um, yeah. No, you're welcome. So lastly, if the listeners want to find out a little bit more about you, your accounts online, where can they find you? Um, For starters, you can go to militantlymixed.com and that would link you to the podcast and all the social media there. Uh, I am at Militantly Mixed on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. I also have a private group on Facebook for the Militantly Mixed podcast for for mixed folks that want a safe space to talk without, you know, the eyes of monoracial people on the outside or friends and family. Um, So you can join that as well through the regular Militantly Mixed page on Facebook. Um, you can request an invite to there. Uh, we also do a weekly hangout on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific time in the U.S., which I believe is 6, um, no, 5, 5 a.m., 5 p.m. in the U.K., I believe. Okay. Um, we do have some people who are in London who come on the the call as well. Um, we have a, a handful, they, one every week and a couple that come come on and off so um we do have that available for pretty much almost every time zone 10 a.m pacific hits uh all of the states the uk europe and africa up through 8 8 p 
PM, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's as broad a reach as I could get to in- incorporate as many people as I could. Cool. Um, for Blurred Comics, that's B-L-E-R-D-C-O-M-I-X-E-D. Uh, we are on um, all of the social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We also have a, a very general one-page website, blurredcomics.com. And, um, and as an extension of that, I think also with gulfcoastcosmos.com, my comic book shop, um, we, because I'm doing nerd stuff on both channels, uh, we retweet and reshare and regram all of the things, um, from the show and from the store. And then by furious is by furious pod on, uh, Twitter and Instagram as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a lovely rest of the day. You too. Thank you. Thanks. Bye.